Young Europeans deserve opportunities. But I also want all young people to be given a real choice in life. Nous avons devant nous des défis historiques. For the good of future generations. Hello, I'm Victor Jack, and welcome back to Generation Politics, a new podcast by two Cambridge University societies, European Horizons and Selwyn Polsok. Across this series, our aim will be to help empower young people, and young Europeans in particular, by shedding light on the political issues which are most important to Gen Z, our generation. With this in mind, we've been polling our online followers and friends on the issues which matter most to them, and we're using this to determine the topics for our episodes. Thank you to everyone who voted in our survey, and this week we'll be taking on one of the most popular chosen topics, intercultural exchange in Europe. We'll be unpacking this vast topic with three guests over the course of the episode, but what really lies at the heart of this week's episode is the question, what does it mean to be European in 2021? Is there anything that still unifies 27 member states and a whole continent? And closely tied to this, what opportunities are there for young Europeans today to understand and discover each other's cultures? To complement and gain a more thorough understanding of these issues, we'll be addressing throughout the perspective of one country whose citizens are increasingly looking out from the EU, that is, the UK after Brexit, and one increasingly looking in, that is, Serbia, which has been moving slowly towards accession since 2014. First, we speak to MEP Nicholas Ninas about the EU's work on culture and Erasmus. Next, we speak to Constance Itzel, director of the Europe-wide museum House of European History, around the tensions in creating a museum that tells a unified narrative of a diverse continent. And finally, to Juras Milutinovic, an 18-year-old pro-EU Serbian, active in civil society, who tells us how both Euroscepticism and Europhilia are gripping Serbia's young people today. First up, we speak with Nicholas Ninas. Nicholas is a Green MEP from Germany, first elected in 2019. In the European Parliament, he works closely on intercultural exchange in Europe and has been vocal about the UK's withdrawal from the Erasmus Exchange Programme, has been active in laying the groundwork for the EU's much-anticipated Conference on the Future of Europe, which was finally given the green light last week, and is fighting for funds to go towards cultural recovery amid pandemic cuts to the sector continent-wide. Hi Nicholas, thanks for joining us. So the UK recently announced it would be pulling out of the Erasmus Exchange Programme and replacing it by the Turing Scheme. Boris Johnson's justification for leaving the Erasmus Scheme was that it was incredibly expensive and the Exchequer lost out. What does this say about the value placed on the EU Exchange Programme by the government, given that all other EU countries have signed up to the scheme? So first of all, um, you you must make not the mistake to... Um, believe the stuff that Boris Johnson says here because the thing is um, with with Erasmus for example you basically get what you pay for right so whenever uh, you pay for um, a student going abroad well you get what what you pay for the students going abroad and using this um, outside on the other hand like what he's referring to probably is that there's um, a lot of people going to into the UK more than are leaving the UK. First of all, 
um, that's not per se a bad thing because if you think about it, a person that comes to the UK and lives in the UK for half a year uh, will probably uh, need a flat. Uh, they'll probably um, buy a, a tuition fee. They probably uh, need something to eat. Maybe they go for the barber uh, once in a while. So basically, you're bringing people in who are benefiting the economy. Um, staying there for half a year, learning something about the culture, and then uh, with a good network of scientific knowledge, they'll go back and maybe in future build up a business together with the people that they met um, in, in their in their um, university year, Erasmus year, um, over in the UK. So first, so that's the first thing. So it's beneficial if more people come in that are going out because that's benefiting the economy and the exchange program. So um, from a very basic economic standpoint, it's just simple not true what Boris Johnson is referring to. Second of all, um, you have to realize that um, while more people are coming into the UK or used to come to the UK than, the, than those that were leaving, if you look percentage-wise on who is using in the, uh, in the, in the European Union the uh, Erasmus program, then the UK students are very much uh, on the top edge of using Erasmus. So there's a lot of people um, using Erasmus to go abroad and getting connections and getting knowledge and getting um, all these benefits that you have from an Erasmus. Uh, besides learning a new language, you're also building social skills. You're also building a network um, that you can do business with in the future if you only want to tend to look at the economic um, issues, which I think um, is not always the, the most useful thing to do, but we also always have to do it to justify our courses because all we think about is how, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to financing it? In July last year, at a plenary debate in the European Parliament, you gave an impassioned speech where you said the EU's motto of united in diversity would become meaningless as diversity threatens to disappear if the entire cultural and creative sector across Europe is not helped. And you argued that if Beethoven were still alive, he would have lamented the little attention paid to cultural recovery in Europe. What are the stakes of European culture as they stand now? And in the seven months since then, do you feel the EU has started taking cultural recovery more seriously? And if not, what more should they be doing? As I said, what, what's at stake is the diversity that we have. Um, you know, I think in, 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 Br in Britain as well as in Germany, um, we have a, a somewhat stable support a social security net also for artists. We have that in several other member states as well. Um, and it's not going great in those countries, you know, it's really bad for them at the moment, but it's um, a lot of them will survive. Not everyone, because there's already a lot of complaints and there's a lot of um, artists who are already looking for other jobs, which is a pity because they just, you know, they just need food on the table. So they they have to stop their art and their creative work. Um, this is also already um, eradicating diversity. But then you have countries like Bulgaria, like uh, like Romania, like um, like uh, um, Hungary, like Poland, where you don't have the means from the from the statehood side to support them, and you also don't have the social security net there. And then maybe you even have an authoritarian government uh, that doesn't even bother if critical opposite uh, 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 journalists from the opposition uh, opposition side 
um, have problems uh, surviving the next few years. So, I, you know, they're not helping definitely. And so I think this is not being seen. And this is also part of our diversity in Europe. And this is the diversity that we also must ensure uh, is still alive after the pandemic. And so with this in regard, I have to say that I do not think that there's been enough done by the European Union to ensure um, the the uh, future of the diversity of our culture. And I mean that with like the European Union, the Commission, as well as the member states, because the issue that we have quite a lot of time um, with you, like every time Europe has problems to act is when Europe uh, doesn't have the competences for it. And they only can get the competences if the member states give it to them. Um, and if they don't, the member states have to act themselves. And so Europe doesn't have the competence for uh, cultural issues. Um, and so they cannot act, they cannot introduce certain uh, measures, and they cannot fund directly. But the member states also don't do anything. And so this is a big issue where I think that we need to put more pressure and we're trying it uh, with heads and toes um, to, to do something about it. We try to, you know, write down at least 2% of the recovery fund, which is 600, um, over 600 billion euros. So 2% of that would be the biggest uh, introduction into the culture sector ever. Um, uh, to write that down, that they have to spend it, their member states have to spend these 2%. But um, they didn't want that in there, so we, we lost that fight. And now it's only uh, mentioning that they should uh, aim for 5%. I mean, uh, and, you know, always when it's a should um, possibility, then governments tend to not do it. And therefore, we should get some more um, components and uh, yeah, uh, uh, competences for the European Union on this issue to ensure that not just funding, but also social securities nets. And that's also the main issue that I'm, that I'm fighting for at the moment. It's a social security net all over Europe for artists. Now, one of Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's flagship projects that she wants to promote is the Conference on the Future of Europe, a multi-year event aiming to suggest institutional and policy reforms to reinvigorate the EU in light of the increasing challenges it faces. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What is the conference? How is it progressing? And what role is there for culture and young people in it? So, first of all, um, the conference itself is a, um, um, yeah, is a, is a conference uh, in which we want to get in touch with uh, the basically everyone uh, about what, how to progress with the European Union. Because, you know, um, I think we see that in a lot of uh, cases where we see, okay, um, we we either have too much Europe or we have too little Europe because at, we are at the, at the middle stage where in a lot of problems that we have, for example, the financial crisis, for example, the migration crisis and so on, we have not the competences alone with the EU, even though it should have it if you want to have a, a combined um, uh combination of these states and if you don't have this this competences then you have issues and problems occurring that we saw in a lot of cases in the last years so we need to solve it do we want no competence for the eu then every member state can do whatever they want then they probably drift out each other and do whatever they want and I think they will fail miserably because we're all very, very tiny continents, uh, very, very tiny countries 
um, in, in respect to China or Russia or the US. Um, and we don't have so much of relevance in the future with India emerging, um, with uh, South America emerging. Um, so, uh, or will we come together and come closer together to solve these problems once and for all uh, with a also majority for all? You know, that's just how democracy works. And so this to have this discussion with all the institutions, so with the Commission, with the Council, with the Parliament, those three institutions are needed in order to change the treaty and to improve and maybe write something new, maybe a new constitution for a European Republic. But we also want to have this discussion with the society and not just like with, okay, we ask you and then we don't care about what you answer. That's sadly a lot of times uh, been done by several governments. Okay, great. I think we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for joining us. Next up, we speak to Konstanz Itzel. Konstanz is the director of the House of European History, a European Parliament funded museum which opened in central Brussels in 2017. A £137 million project, the museum describes itself as recounting the transnational phenomena which have shaped the European continent, connecting and comparing shared experience. However, it has seen its fair share of criticism and controversy as it attempts to tell the story of a historically divided and culturally diverse continent through one unifying thread. Hi Constanz, thanks for joining us. Firstly, tell us a little bit about the thought process and motivations that went into the creation of the House of European History and what challenges it faced in being established, especially since culture is classically not an EU competence. To start with a question at the end, I would say, of course, there's not just one narrative. Uh, it, there can be hundreds of thousands of narratives, depending on who speaks. Here we have a team, international team of historians and curators speaking. Um, and it's our version of the European uh, of European story, but of course it's based on historiographical research and a lot of uh, a lot of curatorial knowledge and and uh, thinking behind. Um, a team of uh, designers and producers that work with the historians, so a very very complex undertaking. Uh, but it's the version produced by one one team. But now about the commonalities, there are common experiences, there are shared experiences um, uh, that most Europeans shared and we have selected them and present them. I will mention a few. Uh, those are the revolutions of the 19th century, the national movements, uh, the, um, the development of new social classes, the birth of communism in the 19th century. Um, and then when we go to the 20th century, the world wars, the interwar period, um, the Holocaust and then European integration history. But of course, uh, commonalities don't mean that those processes were experienced in the, in the, in the same way. So if you take the World War Two, for example, um, the, the national situations were very different and also the situation, of course, of different victim groups were, were very different uh, from one another or um, people could experience the war as a, as a victim or as a also as a bystander when you think about collaboration issues or as a perpetrator. So here we come to the issue that we, we uh, speak about common and shared processes, but at the same time, we need to address the difference. And this is the, the complexity that we try to um, achieve in this museum. Diversity, in, but, but nevertheless uh, shared experiences. So this, it's, a bit about, it's a bit like squaring the circle. It's a bit like addressing diversity and unity at the, at the same time. But I think we've managed to find a compromise. Now, obviously you can't fit everything into one building. So if you had to say there are some improvements or events that should have been given more room in the museum, what would you say that these are? 
So um, the answer is, of course, different uh, because the answer is always in the eye of the beholder. We have received uh, lots of comments about the museum and uh, lots of things that people thought are missing or that should have been told differently. Um, and that shows that we could have we could make tens ten museums like this, and and still we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't uh, end. Um, personally, I think that we should uh, when we will refurbish the museum, we should do more about coloniz decolonization, for example. Um, we should uh, try to include more um, migrants' voices because we were very busy uh, trying to reconcile the national histories in a way. We we were very, very uh, that was already very complicated. So to address even more complexity, I think that um, uh, that addressing these issues would be necessary and, and welcome. Now, history and how events and individuals are memorialized is inherently political and incredibly sensitive sometimes. In the past, Polish government officials have criticised the museum for not emphasising Europe's Christian roots enough, while others say it paints an overly generous picture of life under communism. How has the House of European History navigated these tensions and challenges of what European history should or should not include? It's important to stress that it's the, a team of curators and historians that made the exhibition um, and not the European Parliament uh, with its certain political affiliations. So. Uh, the academic independence that is laid down in the founding papers is, is very important, notably as we are attached to a political institution. Um, and then, well, um, of course, this could be done differently. So we could have more space about Christianity, for example. Um, and it, it was a decision mainly based on the fact that it's uh, about 19th and 20th century, which is after secularization. So um, when we will make exhibitions speaking about the Middle Ages, of course, Christianity would be much more, much more dominant. But this is also a curatorial choice. And this was a negotiation process uh, in the team of historians, uh, which sometimes was also controversial. And uh, there were there were conflicts. And in the end, there is a uh, there was a director that decided at the time. So um, in some cases, I I remember very well the, the controversial issues, which uh, where we had different opinions and where in the end we had to f to find a, um, a solution in the team. I think the specificity about this museum, and this is also compared to history books, is that it is a team work. It's a negotiation process with um, uh, a lot of, as I said, 10 curators, but also the designers and producers, because in the end it's about an experience for the visitor. It's not a book. It's an experience um, that you have to see with your senses, with your... Um, there's sound, there's visual, visual experience, there's documents, there's, uh, it's a puzzle actually, uh, an experience. Um, so it's a, it was a negotiation process and um, it's not the work of an individual uh, author like we, you would find in, an, in a history book where you have one writer or you have an anthology with different writers. So it is a very specific uh, medium, a museum. Um, and yeah, uh, we 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 didn't decide according to political criteria, as I said, uh, but it was a, a team negotiation, and we yeah we it, the result is as it is, and as I said, it could could have been done differently and can be changed, of course. It has been said that it's a quite German way of seeing history, um, meaning a very critical one, uh, looking at uh, negative sides of the past, when uh, some countries would rather 
like to depict their history as a, as a very glorious one or a positive, uh, rather stress the positive sides. Um, and there is no common tradition of history museums in Europe where you, you could say that um, it's always done in a certain way. Um, so it, um, here again, I would say we, we are aware of the, of the sensitivities and um, we try to base uh, our work as much as we can on current historiographical research. And sometimes we can um, explicitly speak about differences in perception. So we, uh, let's take the, the um, example of the history of the Shoah. Uh, when we went into different case studies, um, and now I'm speaking about the afterwar, the memory of the Shoah, we 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 look at the GDR and uh, BAD, uh, uh, the two Germanys, and uh, when were the different moments in time when um, uh, guilt was recognized or responsibility was recognized, or when when it was uh, uh, rather um, uh, rejected uh, or lied about. Uh, so we also show that in one country's history, it can there can be different moments uh, with different ways of uh, getting to grips with the past. And finally, attendance to museums has been declining across Europe, particularly among younger visitors. There is also a socio-economic dimension to access to cultural spaces like museums. Visitors with high economic and cultural capital are often overrepresented. How can museums continue to deliver value to all Europeans, given individuals are increasingly educating themselves online? And we may be looking at recessions continent-wide after the pandemic, making it difficult for people to spend time and money on cultural excursions. So in terms of uh, barriers to access culture, the, the European Parliament, who is our sponsor, decided that the museum should be for free, so uh, there's uh, no entrance fee. Um, we at the moment, which is what is really remarkable, but this is since the pandemic, we have 73% of young visitors under 34. So 73% of our visitors are really quite young, um, which is surprising because we don't have school groups. We don't have groups at the moment. So we, we do have a very young audience. Um, we are developing online offers because we are aware that um, yeah, we, we, we would like to reach people across Europe and um, the pandemic in a way has allowed us to focus resources more on this. But uh, it's not an easy process because we have to clear the copyrights for all the hundreds of objects from hundreds of different museums around Europe. So it's a, it's a bit more complicated than if we were a museum with our own collection um, having a long tradition locally. Okay, great. I think we'll wrap up there. In our final few minutes, we chat to Juros Militinovic. Juros is an 18-year-old Serb who is active in civil society and cross-European initiatives in Serbia, working on migration issues, for example, in the think-tank-led conference Reboot Europe. He has grown up in a country which, having applied for EU accession in 2009, has only made painfully slow progress towards joining the EU. The current target of 2025 is looking increasingly unlikely as the country struggles to meet macroeconomic targets and conditions it needs to complete the 34 stages of accession, so-called chapters, of which it has fully completed only two. This is something which is likely to be slowed even further by the pandemic as exports to the EU fell 6.3% compared to January last year. Like many other people hoping to find better opportunities in Serbia, he has emigrated to the EU and is beginning his university studies in Slovenia. Hi Euros, thanks for joining us. Firstly, tell us a little bit about some of the European initiatives and activities you're involved with. And tell me, 
To what extent do you identify as European? Um, that's a very interesting topic. First of all, uh, as uh, as for my involvement, uh, I'm currently working on a youth exchange program with uh, Franco-German Youth Cooperation Office. It'll be uh, a program to uh, educate young people from uh, Germany, France, and the Western Balkans uh, on our similar values and, in general, uh, the idea of being European and the uh, subject of that particular program is migration. Um, the op opening calls uh, will be in May uh, for everybody who, who would want to apply. Um, and I have been involved with, uh, mostly in Serbia, with uh, transitional justice projects. Uh, as you know, uh, the Balkans uh, have been through some very rough times in the 90s, and uh, a lot of those war criminals are still uh, roaming free and have a lot of support from people. Uh, so I've been involved with uh, organizations who uh, try to educate young people as much as possible about those horrific crimes and uh, the people that are still many of them in uh, governments still. And uh, do I feel European? I, I definitely do. And I think that it's a very shared identity among uh, the Balkan people that we do feel European, but there is a very clear distinction between uh, the people who are European and people who are in European Union. And um, it's a... It's a clear difference in uh, possibilities, in opportunities. Uh, for example, people who from Croatia who has uh, joined the EU uh, have a chance to, uh, at, a, at a much uh, affordable rates, uh, study in all European countries, while um, people from Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia um, have to struggle a lot with it and um, they have to go through a grueling uh, process of applying for a visa and I think that um, there is that little bit of a separation where uh, young people from the Balkans feel as if uh, Europe is kind of failing them because human rights and in general financial situation in the Western Balkans is uh, not phenomenal and there is that sort of a feeling that European Union is not doing quite enough. Do you feel the EU has done enough to foster cultural exchange between young Serbs and EU member states? And what could it be doing more of? Um, they definitely have taken some very important uh, steps uh, towards, towards that, but uh, there's still a, a long way to go. Um, there are um, many programs of cultural exchange, but they are not very accessible. Um, many, many people in Serbia and in the Balkans in general live in very rural areas. And uh, the process of application for uh, a cultural exchange program is not on their mind. They don't know about it. So um, European Union, I think, uh, needs to do a bit of educating people on the possibilities because opportunities are there. They're limited for now, but they are there. Uh, but I think that uh, in general, people are not aware of them enough. And there is sort of that feeling that European Union is just throwing money out there to seem as if they're doing something, when in reality, they are not quite in putting in the effort. There is money, but there is not really effort. Perhaps surprisingly, a 2020 survey found that a majority, albeit a very slim one at 51%, of 18 to 29-year-olds do not want Serbia to join the EU. Some political scientists, such as Tibor Moldvai, have argued that this is a result of the Serbian educational system, which he says does not support a critical way of thinking.
He argues that history books celebrate the Serbs as a nation of heroes and conceal Serbian war crimes, thus breeding resentment against young people for the West's involvement and NATO's bombing of Serbia in 1999. Do you think this is an accurate explanation of growing Euroscepticism among young Serbs? Um, I definitely think that uh, lack of proper education uh, plays a key part. Uh, Serbian history books do not involve major, major uh, events that occurred in the 90s because they do not paint us as very nice people and a very nice nation. And I think um, steps need to be taken. Um, You know, some horrible things have happened. And I think that just like Germany after World War II uh, separated themselves from the crimes the, the Nazi regime committed. The same needs to happen in the Balkans. There has not been that move, that push. There is a lot of people still supporting uh, the ideas that were b- being perpetuated in the 90s. So education plays an absolutely a key role. Also, the political landscape. Um, we do not have, uh, you know, our leading, the ruling party uh, is technically pro-European, but uh, is very lenient to Russia uh, and is getting more and more involved with uh, Chinese government and sort of pushing uh, EU away. Um, For example, Montenegro has already opened uh, all chapters, while Serbia has opened only 18. And there is that lack of political push for for European Union. So that reflects in young people. also, there is that still that resentment from the war that, uh, again, European Union did not do enough to protect us and that there is uh, this anti-Serbian agenda or whatever. Uh, but I do think that that will be solved by education. Uh, Montenegro is a great example. They have a much higher approval, approval rating uh, for EU than Serbia. And they will probably join much, much uh, faster. So, management of COVID-19 has seen Serbia's president, Aleksandr Vucic, publicly encourage a narrative of victimization and bitterness against Brussels and emphasize connections with China. In March last year, for example, Vucic publicly declared that European solidarity does not exist and that only China can help Serbia fight the virus. Recently, China transported a million doses of COVID-19 vaccines to Serbia. These vaccines were received with a formal reception at the highest level, hosted by Vucic himself. Now, these events have, for many, confirmed that China's efforts to position itself as Serbia's most important partner in the fight against COVID-19 have been accepted by most Serbians. In fact, 40% of Serbs now actually believe China is Serbia's biggest aid donor, despite it being the EU by a wide margin. And linked to this, of course, are the continuing strong cultural ties between Russia and Serbia. To what extent do you think the EU is losing young Serbs to Russia and China today? Um, well, there is a historic connection between uh, Russia and Serbia. Uh, they're both Slavic nations. Uh, there is a lot of cultural exchanges. There is a lot of cultural ties. Uh, the EU in the recent years has definitely pushed for more cultural importance in, in Balkans in general, but mostly in Serbia. Uh, they are the largest investor. They, uh, they are always the first ones to help when anything uh, bad happens, such as uh, COVID-19. Uh, I believe they donated like probably 
I, I'm assuming, but uh, around a hundred times more than uh, than China. You know, China provided us to buy things when we needed them, uh, vaccines or masks or whatever. Uh, but they do it with a sort of grandiosity, and is received in Belgrade uh, with the, this grandiosity. And you know, when there was a mask shortage, they they allowed us to buy um, a certain number of masks and like the president went to to the airport to to wait for the masks and it's like they allowed us to buy it it's it's not some immense crazy help while european union literally donated millions if not hundreds of millions of euros but uh i think that the government in serbia the the politics does not mm, they choose uh, to to highlight russia's and chinese involvement because it is still viewed as superior than european unions um involvement with european union is still uh, kind of being seen as um being a sellout uh, so but European Union is definitely gaining ground and more and more uh, youth is realizing uh, EU's effects, especially with, uh, um, you know, every year there's more and more project projects uh, where EU supports youth in Serbia. So there is that awareness that if you want, you know, uh, if you want a scholarship and if you're really successful at something, China is not going to give it to you, Russia is not going to give it to you, but EU might. So there is that awareness and it's, I think, definitely in the next few years, it will gain more traction. Right, well, I think we'll wrap up there. Thanks very much for listening. Subscribe, leave a review, and above all, we want to hear from you for feedback and future episodes. Our poll is now live on the Selwyn Politics Society and European Horizons Cambridge pages on Facebook, as well as our Twitter. Let us know which topics we should take on next, and we'll be back very soon. Thank you.